Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. What that video is talking about is change. Lord, change me. Lead me into a different kind of life. Lead me into a life that will bless others. Not simply bless myself. It's too much preaching out there that says if you, you know, follow Jesus, that uh, he'll bless you, right? That's not untrue. But look at Genesis 12, 1, where God calls Abraham and Sarah out of the retirement community to create a whole new family. And he said, look, I'm going to bless you, what? And through you, the whole world will be blessed. That's a through you. Change me for a through you moment, okay? So welcome to all of you worshiping online and here. If we haven't met, I'm Chip Freed, the lead teaching pastor here. And as you can tell behind me, as Andrew said, um, this afternoon is going to be high energy and a lot of excitement and a lot of teaching about the author of that excitement. You know what enthusiasm is? Enthusiasm, you ever know what that word means? Entheos. Enthusiasm means to be in God. And I love that. So uh, if, you're, if you've got children, you can't miss this. Come on out um, and come early. So we can make sure you got in if you're not pre-registered. Uh, and if you just want to come and greet people, probably half the folk they'll come today um, probably have no church home. And some of them don't even believe in God, but they're looking for some wonderful things to do. And we want to tell them we built this church for you. You are the VIP, man. We want to come on in. So come and join us. We've been talking about, honey, can you bring me my clicker? Dave, I'm the tech team's never going to f- forget this moment where I forgot I'm like a gunfighter without my, my six-pack sheriff. And here it is. Got it. I win. Um, we've been talking about this theme, the power to change. The power to change. I think deep inside all of us, there, there's a desire, or it should be, to change. Because it says, you know, in the Bible, morning to morning, new mercies I see. I want God to keep growing me up to be more like Jesus uh, all of us should seek that. So, how, you know, how do we change? What do we change to? And today I'm dealing with the power for change. Let's just review where we've been. In, in, in week one, um, Pastor Steve gave us this premise that real and lasting change is not behavior modification. But first and foremost, it's spiritual transformation. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. And then Caleb and I, the last two weeks... Um, basically dealt on this premise based on how you want to grow spiritually. What is one habit you need to start or one habit you need to break? Basically, I was talking about the, you know, the theory of aggregation of, uh, of small things, the aggregation of marginal gains, saying we don't have to change 100% overnight. We always talk about Paul getting knocked off his horse and being converted. Do you know Paul spent 13 years in, in study and reflection after that? Before he began his ministry. Spiritual change is gradual. I, I've t- taught for a long time. You could be saved all at once. In fact you already are. If you read your scriptures. But change takes a little longer. Anybody know that? Amen. Yeah I've got one amen. One honest person in the room. The rest of you are like nope. 
all happened all at once. No, but, you know, it, it's gradual change. It's 1% change. And we looked at Daniel. Daniel, who was taken into captivity with Israel when he was a teenager and, and forced to watch, walk naked in front of the emperor and, and persecuted. And, and, you know, at one point ends up in, uh, you know, uh, kind of an outcast. But he had one little habit we learned that day. He, every day, every day, three times a day, he would have kind of a God moment. He would go up into his upper room and he would open the windows toward Jerusalem, which is opening his heart toward God and pray. And that little 1% thing, what we learned is you know, years later when he was an 80-year-old man, he was thrown into a lion's den. And because he had, he had created a health, healthy, holy habit, he had the faith to persevere. Caleb last week talked so much about community, the need for community. We need community. We were created in community. Have you ever thought about that? Created in community. There was only one thing in creation that was not good. We weren't meant to be alone. That's not just about marriage. It's not just about friendship. It's about community. We need others. Dr. Martin Luther King used to say, I can never be what I want to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. That's community. We need it. And I was thinking about that. Hebrews and Second Peter and Revelation were specifically written to a Christian community that was now under persecution. The Roman Empire was doing unthinkable things to them, and it was saying to hang in there, to not give up community, right? And, and I was thinking, as I was watching last week, I was away, but as I was wa- listening to Caleb online, I, I was thinking, my gosh, that's so similar to what we've been through the last three years because that early church was driven underground they were driven away from each other by these horrible persecutions and what happened you know three and a half years ago COVID drove us underground and isolated and only by ourselves or with our immediate families and then more political division came in and drove us away further and then racial anxiety with Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd you know created another kind of angst and drove us even into other corners and we ended up similarly that the word of Hebrews was like written to us but don't you dare give up on one another and on God and don't quit meeting together as some has fallen into habit to do because you need each other you need community so if you're worshiping with us online we're so glad you're here I know some of you are in different states we have groups in different countries and, and, and I'm encouraging you talk to Pastor Kurt online even talk to us so we talk about how can we make better connections, even together in Zoom or in your local communities. And if you're in greater Cleveland, you just fell into the habit to always be online. Hey, I love our online ministry. It's not going anywhere. If I didn't have it, I wouldn't have heard last week's message. But maybe once a month, just say, I want to be with the people and I want to hug and I want to see how folks are doing. We need you and you need us. Now today, what I want to talk about more is, is lasting change. Okay, lasting change. Um, that uh, the, the, the focus is, um, we've been doing this book, Atomic Habits. It was recommended to me, actually by our younger staff members, by James Clear. We recommend it to all of you, because we're going to take you to PhD level now. Um, if you call me doctor, we can't be friends. Um, but uh, the, this book was great, and we are sending out a couple weeks for each series. Here's something you might want to read to supplement. And, and in this book... Uh, James Clear identifies two problems. If we really want change, right? He says too many times we change the wrong thing 
And secondly, we try to change the wrong way. He spends most of his time on changing the wrong thing, thing or the wrong way, meaning habits. But in one chapter, I love it, very early, he talks about we changed the wrong thing. Okay? And what he talks about is different kinds of um, habits to de- develop. He says one is outcome-based habits. The other is identity-based habits. And he has a graph on this where he uses three level layers of behavioral change. One is outcomes. That's, that's what, what our goals are. That's what's being produced. I want to lose weight. I want to get a promotion. I'd like to get an A in that class. That's a result, right? And, and oftentimes we focus on outcome change. The processes, the next circle in, is the habits. It's, it's the systems we create for change. But in the center of the bullseye is the identity. It's not what you do. It's who you are. Who are you? Right? Jesus says, who, who do you say that I am? Who are you? What do you believe? What's your worldview? And, and what James uh, Clear says is, there will be no true behavioral change unless there's identity change. He said too many people change from the outside in. In other words, we're trying to change outcomes, right? And then figure out what processes and ultimately begin to look in the mirror. But he said the most effective is change from the inside out. He gets strangely theological here, right? As a secular writer. That unless our identity is, what did he say in here? I, I loved it. He said um, um, that, uh, uh, I don't, it was good. Um, trust me. He basically said there's no, that identity change, that's it, came back to me. Thank you, Jesus. Is the North Star of all change, which is really interesting. Um, and so today I want to talk about lasting change is not simply changing what you want to do but changing who you want to be, right? That's being born again. And that doesn't only happen once, by the way. <laughs> you got all those, Lord, birth me into an infant and birth me into an adolescent and birth me in, you know, into, into other areas of my life, um, that this is what we're trying to achieve. And what, what James Clear says, which is really interesting, that identity change, he says it's hard to change your habits if you never change who you are, Right? So he gives an example, if you want to quit smoking, if you're on the outcome change basis, right, trying to create outcome habits, and somebody says, you're trying to quit smoking, and somebody says, hey, would you like a cigarette? You're going to say, no, I'm trying to quit smoking. You're going to focus on the outcome. But if you're focusing on who you are, your identity, and somebody says, hey, would you like a cigarette? You say, no, I'm not a smoker. Do you hear the difference? In fact, I'm not trying to learn an instrument that's an outcome. I want to be a musician. Get it? I, I, I don't want to read a few more books. I actually want to become a reader, be known as one who reads. And, and that, that identity change becomes really the North Star. Now, what's very, very interesting in this is um, with James Clear, God love him, then you know, he knows the questions that's happening. How do I change my identity? Are you wondering that as I'm preaching? I was wondering that when I was reading it. Okay, doctor, how do you change your identity? And what's very interesting is this brother who has said, we need to change here first. We need not to focus on habits and processes. This is what's going to build it. He has no idea. And there's finally a little criticism of the book, and there's nothing wrong with that. Because what he says is, oh, okay, how do you change your identity? 
well, you, you, you change your processes. You look at your outcomes. I said, wait a minute, bro. You just told us don't do that. Because there's a place. Um, our Jewish brothers and sisters wear their yarmulkes. You know why they wear it? Because they said there's a place where I stop and God starts. And, and, and Brother James is stuck with theologians. So if you're watching today, James, I'm here. I'm your man. I'm going to help. Right? Here's what Jesus says from what the, the scripture that we heard read for us. Ready to buckle your seatbelt. This one's going to drop. How do you change your identity? You need an exorcism. You need an exorcism. That's what this story says. Right? That, that you, you need a, something is possessing you on the inside. Something is controlling you in the innermost parts of your being. And, and that needs to change. It needs to be expelled from your life. And so we have this story where, where Jesus comes out. And, and here's a man and he, he's possessed by a, by a demon. Now, you know, I'm going to lose some of you right there. Because some of you go, okay, demon possession. You know, these are primitive people. We've learned about mental illness. We've learned about all kind of other natural causes. We've learned about, you know, psychology. So these are primitive people. And anything they couldn't understand, they just say, oh, it's demon possession. If you feel that way, Jesus is laughing at you. Because he's way more nuanced. Right? Jesus is not superstitious here. In fact, he has told his disciples, don't be superstitious. They saw a guy in John's gospel who was born blind. They said, Jesus, who sinned? Because in that day and age, if you were, you know, born with a disability or, or some kind of different orientation or anything else, that somehow, oh, you're sinful. Not that we do that today. Hello. Um, but what happened, Jesus said, no, this sin is not involved in this. People are all carrying their own stuff. This is an opportunity for God's glory to be made known. He's not a superstitious magician. In fact, in other places, he knows he's healing. But Jesus said, just like life, evil itself is more multifaceted. It could be mental illness. It could be abuse in your raising. But there can be supernatural elements to it, too, stirring the pot. And if you don't believe that, you haven't been watching the news in Israel and Gaza. What can make human beings that vile and corrupt that they can hear we do the things that we're hearing about what could make a tyrant so full of himself that he would literally bomb and kill children in ukraine that are basically his own family See, something gets into the human heart and stirs it up. I remember when the horrible tragedy of Rwanda was happening, there was a missionary that's there that declared, there are no devils left in hell. They're all here in Rwanda. So that's all I'm going to say about this another sermon. Um, but Jesus is just saying, be more nuanced. Understand that life is multifaceted, right? And so he meets this man. Here's a man. His identity is the one who was born mute. That's how he's known by Something left him unable to speak. Maybe a you know, literal supernatural demon. Maybe, maybe low, the evil of low self-esteem, which is a lie. Uh, maybe there was some kind of abuse. But he didn't have a voice. And when Jesus came into that and came into his life, suddenly that was expelled and he reclaimed his voice. That's a beautiful image, friends. And I hope as I end this sermon with a couple personal illustrations, it'll become more known to you. That, that this person regained their voice. And, and, and 
this is where how Jesus does his work and says there's something that's controlling your life. There's something on the inside that's causing this. Now, the crowd reacts with outcomes. They don't, I mean, here they are standing before the very presence of God and all they want is to understand what happened. Okay, who's in charge of this thing? Beelzebub? Now, we always interpret that as Satan, but Beelzebub was in ancient pagan literature, he was known as the master of the mountain, the master of the temple. He was that thing, that spirit in all of us that wants to be in charge. And so they accused Jesus of a power grab. You're trying to be in charge of everything. Have you surrendered your life to God? Or sometimes do you ask God into your life to be your personal assistant? Because you're still in charge. That's the spirit of Beelzebub. The other group says, we need a sign. If I was Jesus, I'd go like, were you here three minutes ago? Like, wait, wait, you need a sign? These are, they're testing him. These are the people from Missouri. God love them. You know, show me. I need evidence. I need a sign. You need a sign? Explain a rainbow. Right? And, and I know some of you scientists that do. Look, I just recently got my doctorate, but I don't have it in science. But you know what? When I don't understand something, I turn to Dr. Google. <laughs> I do. So I googled how a rainbow's caused. Here's the scientific explanation. A rainbow is caused by sunlight and atmospheric conditions. Light enters a water droplet, slowing down and bending as it goes from air to denser water. The light reflects of the inside of the droplet, separating it into its component wavelengths of colors. When light exits the droplet, it makes a rainbow. Where'd the light come from? Oh, that came from the sun. Where'd the sun come from? Oh, that came from the Big Bang. Where'd the dust come from? I'm here all day. Right? At some point, natural explanations break down. And that's why when we look at a rainbow or a sunset or a sunrise, we're not just caught up in the empirical data. We're captivated in our hearts. It's a memory trace back to the creator of all. And so this is, this is, this is what Jesus said. You're, you're possessed by other things. There's other things taking over your life. And, and he has the audacity to say, if I'm not the one that's possessing you, something else will. I'm the one that needs to expel things from your life so that I can be at the center of your life. Everything, you can, it might even be good things in your life. There's nothing, I, I believe I'm trying to eat better and trying to get back on some workout routines. Those are wonderful, but they will not save me because there's a time that your workouts are not going to matter. Trust me, I'm 61. It gets a little different than when I was 40. Right? And, and there's other times where, you know, ultimately uh, we know that, that our human bodies will fail. And so Jesus said, if you put your trust in other things, your fate will be worse than it was at the first. If I'm not at the center of your life. And he basically says that, um, you know, that, uh, that he can expel anything that's in the midst of our lives. And he tells this kind of cryptic story. I want to jump ahead. He tells this story. He said, you know, it's like a person who had like something in charge of their life, an evil spirit, but they swept and they cleaned their house and they got their life in order and the spirit went out of that house. Um, But then the spirit came back and brought seven friends (laughs) that more evil than the first and took dwelling there. Now that's a complicated parable. But what what I've really liked is when what Matthew says, he adds, 
When the spirit came back, whatever we had swept out, it found the house empty. The lights were on. No one was home. And it was, even though it was swept and put in order. See, a lot of us sweep and sweep and sweep and try to get our lives in order. And we always feel like we're failing. But you know what's even worse? To sweep and sweep and sweep and try to put your life in order. And it does. Because you know what that does? It perpetuates the lie that you can do it. But it's temporary. And things are going to happen. And, and if you've done it all by your own volition, and that you start believing the lie that I can do it by myself apart from God, then that house is going to end up empty. See, what this guy did is, is he had swept, and he got his house in order, and he'd done all these things, but he forgot to invite Jesus to come and live in it himself, right? But Jesus says, here's the good... And so what he's basically saying is, if I don't possess your life, right... If Jesus, I don't possess your life, something else will. If your house is vacant, something else will move in. But I love this little part where he says, when a strong man, right, fully armed, guards his castle, his property, there again, his possessions, what are those possessions? It's us, because several evil spirits move in, it's a strong man, they they think they're safe. But if I come, the strongest man, to drive out the demons by the finger of God, then you'll know the kingdom is among you. I love that image, the finger of God. Jesus, you know, he doesn't even break a sweat. You know, a lot of times in the Bible it says, your right hand will protect me. Yeah, Jesus said, sometimes all I need is my finger. You know, uh, when the woman was thrown at the feet of Jesus, caught in adultery, a terrible setup. Of course, they left the man alone. They usually do. But Jesus did what? He just put his finger in the dust and dispelled all the critics and showed her grace and love. We had my granddaughter yesterday. It's a joy for me. Anytime I can kidnap her and my son has to send out, you know, the Canadian Mounties and the National Guard to rescue her from me because I don't give her up easy. But we we took her and we drive with her. We took her down to a children's museum in Akron. And and, uh, we have bucket seats in the back, so we can't put her car seat in the middle, even though we have a mirror where she can see us. So just to comfort her, we put her in the back. And one one of us drives and one of us sits back there. And I try to make Terry drive a lot. Um, But she was driving and I was sitting back there. And Corinne has this beautiful thing. I give her a toy and she's singing and she'll play with the toy. And then she'll go, uh, like... I just want to remember you're there, Papa. And so I put my hand out, and she takes hold of my finger. And then she goes back playing, playing, and does that for a while. And I reach over, and she holds my finger. I got teary-eyed last, yesterday, not just because my granddaughter was reaching my finger, but I thought, how many times in my life has things been going on, and I've been sweeping my house, and I've been trying to fix my life, and I've been doing everything my own way, and then the Holy Spirit jumps on me, and I go, oh. And sometimes I get his hand, but sometimes all I get is his finger. Now, Corinne will grow older where she's able to take my hand. But right now, a finger is enough. And Jesus said, with my little finger, I can come and break through anything that's holding you bondage. I can cast it out. And then your job is to invite me in. Right? Jesus, I stand at the door and knock. This isn't the old thing. I'll take Jesus in your heart. Uh, You know, Jesus doesn't want to come into your heart. 
Your heart is too daggone corrupt. And so is mine. He wants to invite you into his heart. And read what it says. I want to come in and eat with you. And be the Lord of the house. And feast at my table. So let me hurry to end. The, Paul has to say it this way. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That word dwell in the, in the, in the Greek is the word katsikio. My Greek is very bad right now. Katsikio. What it means is to reside in, to, to dwell, to take um, residence in, um, to make one's home. Do you know Paul is praying that Jesus Christ would come do that in us? But in that parable when it said seven evil spirits came back and lived there. You know what word it is? Katsikio. Something's going to dwell there. Something's going to take up residence. Be careful what it is. But the good news is Jesus still does exorcisms. <laughs> he did it in my life. He can do it in yours. Two quick stories. I've only served two churches in my life. You guys screwed up and kept me for 20 years. Um, so, but I, 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 I watched this happen in two individuals. One person here was on the outside doing amazing, was doing great, but kept feeling inadequate on the inside. And he said, you know, I never felt that way until you started to preach. And I said, well, that's my job. Um, you pay me to irritate you. And, you know, it says our job is to harass, uh, the, you know, to uh, pro- what, pro- pro- provide help for the harassed and to harass those who don't need the help. But he came to me and said, I just feel so inferior. He had gone to some psychologists. And believe me, there are great psychologists. But basically they said, you know, they told him, he said, they said I'm in bondage to the... Um, to the ideas of others, my parents were back and all this. So he said, you, their, their prescription was that you need to set your own standards, not be focused by the standards of others. Set your own standards and then go live up to them. And he said, that's not making me feel very better. I said, I know, because they gave you a prescription just go sweep and sweep and sweep and sweep. But what if you built your life on Jesus' standard? Not your standards, not other standards. Because the standard of Jesus is I want you to hear the voice from the master of the universe that you are loved. That's the song that you've been hearing over the sea. That's the nudge that you've been feeling in the night that's making you restless. That's the voice that's been calling you home to take your rest. And he said it was once he started thinking, if I'm living up to the standard of Jesus, which is that I am forgiven and loved, then he said I felt free. The second one is, you know, people, James said, I don't know, how do, how do you change your identity? How do you, how do you um, you know, allow Jesus in? Ephesians says you put off the old self and you take the new self. This was illustrated in my first church. We were on the south side of Elyria and Lorraine County, one of the most historically underserved communities. And the oldest historical black church that had dwindled down to 30 people. And so Terry and I came in and we created a nonprofit and we did outreach to children um, for after schools five days a week. We had a school for students suspended, expelled. We did drug elimination, summer programs, theater outreach. And um, it grew up to about 250 children weekly, you know, with another 200 on a wait list. Now, would it shock you to, even though when we started, it was all African-American, would it shock you to know that when we ended, it wasn't? if you know Terry and I. 
And so there were young white children started to come in. There was young Hispanic children starting to come in. And we started to look like 7-9. It was Revelation 7-9. One of my favorite communities being with those kids. And there were two uh, young white twins that came in. One was missing a hand from a birth defect. But they were just so joyful and so wonderful. And, but what happened was they would get very sad when we would do like a play or we would do a concert. And I would talk to them, what's going on? And they said, we wish our grandpa would come. I wish our grandpa would come. And so, you know, I, I went over to the community. He was living in one of those small white pocket communities in the area. And, and I, I, I went and just got to know him and just introduced myself and say, hey, your children are up at our after school. We love it. And they're so wonderful. And, and uh, I asked him about, hey, you ever think about showing up? What I found out, this guy was a blue collar southerner who had worked in a factory all his life. And he moved north. His son had died. He took his grandchildren in. He moved up north because there were jobs at the Ford Motor Plant in Lorraine where he became a foreman. He had a pretty decent job. But I found out there were four demons in his life at the center. One was he was very, very frugal. And that should not be a demon, which he found out, but it was twisted. Two, he had good old front porch southern hospitality. That shouldn't be a demon, except his hospitality was simply for people that looked like him. Thirdly, um, he had a scorn for educated people. He hated educated people. And fourth, he was a racist. He had a sin of racism. He, he despised people who weren't white. And I began to share with him, and I was stopped by a lot, and and he, he used to mess with me, and he's, he, I, I think I was in my 30s, and he was in his late 50s. And he said, you know, you're the only person comes here as a preacher that doesn't seem like one. He said, you do more listening than preaching. And I said, well, I'm just trying to get to know you. And one, one month, he came to church. He started picking his grandkids up from the after school. The next, a few months later, he came twice in the same month, right? And uh, not long after that, in that church, we did altar calls every Sunday. You know, if you need a church home or you want to accept Christ in your life. And it was like six months into this deal, and this brother gets up with tears in his eyes and walks down the altar. And I, you know, received Christ, and I saw an exorcism happen. Those demons who expelled from his life. Because when Jesus Christ was his master, he, he couldn't scorn education anymore. And, and, he, he, we, and I talked, and he said, you know, you know why I hated educated people? Because I dropped out of high school in the ninth grade. So what was he doing? He had to hate those folks so he could hide his own inferiority. And he said, as a southern white person uh, with growing up in racism, I, 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 I kind of was taught to hate those people, but there was something that made me feel good that there was somebody that was better than. And then he said, if white is right, at least I had that. What? He was hiding his own inferiority. And then we talked about his frugality. I mean, he had more money. He didn't have to live in the neighborhood he did, but he wanted to say, but he, what he learned, he said, when I read my Bible, it's okay to be frugal, but God wants you to be frugal, but not just so you can spend only on yourself and your own family, but that you have resources to help others who need them through charities and the work of God and the church. And he said, I never discovered that before. And so he's kept being frugal so he could help others. And hospitality was redeemed because his front 
porch became a playground for when our kids left the after schools and began to walk as they all walked. None of them were picked up in cars. It was Terry driving van if they need a ride home. But they, these, folk, these kids now feel safe that whether they were friends, you know, his white granddaughters or white friends or black friends or Hispanic friends or disability friends, they would go up on his big front porch and he became a daycare worker for a Revelation 7-9 community of children of every race, you and that. And he did it with joy in his heart. And he said, these kids are a blessing to my life. Go explain that without an exorcism. Give me some chemical raw data of what turns a person's life around. Because I will tell you, I have seen many, many church folk in my life who never have a conversion like that. Because they believe in Jesus, but they don't let him possess your inner self. They don't let him change your identity. They don't let him baptize you into a whole new you and put off the old self and become new. This brother did, and I relished his friendship till the day I left that community. And here's the last thing I want to leave you with. Jesus said to him, I witnessed it. Jesus said to me, I'm your pastor because of it. And I pray to God, you have heard Jesus say to you, I am the one who can bind whatever's binding you. I am the one that can break through whatever stronghold that negativity and evil spirits and and evil in general has in your life, anything that's controlling you, and bring about the change you've been praying for, the change you've been hoping for. And here's the good news. I can bring that change in you permanently. If you practice holy habits and you keep me at the center of your life. Amen? Hey, man, we're going to, why do you think we're doing a kids club today? Because we want our children to know that God is a really big deal. And let God, let Jesus Christ, as little as you might know, let him, let him understand how big a deal he is and, and know that, you know, nothing that comes upon your life can control you. If you let Jesus Christ control your life, I hope you'll come out and cheer them on. If you have, I hope you come out and be in our main lobby and greet some folk because Jesus Christ is risen and he is Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for exorcisms and we need it. So come Holy Spirit. Whenever a foul spirit gets in with me, Lord, it's because I haven't been vigilant. But I need to turn to you and just reach up to your finger like my little granddaughter reaches up for mine and lay hold of it and say, Jesus, I need you. Take that that prayer at the end of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wickedness within me. Do an exorcism, Lord, and lead me, lead us into the way everlasting. Amen.